You're listening to the Locked On Nuggets podcast, your daily podcast on the Denver Nuggets. Now, here is your host from denverstiffs.com, Adam Mates. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Locked On Nuggets podcast, part of the Locked On NBA Network. I'm your host, Adam Mates from denverstiffs.com, the largest Denver Nuggets blog and community on the web. Check us out. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Today's episode of the show is going to be a great one. I have brought in probably the uh, the best draft analyst in the world at the moment, uh, certainly one of my favorites, and somebody who has a lot of interesting perspective on Bull Bull, maybe not one that Nuggets fans will love every piece of, uh, from The Athletic at Sam Vecini. Adam, man, I, you know what? Like last year, I missed the fact that we didn't get to do this. We didn't get to do a debrief <laughs> after the Nuggets draft. Like you're one of my favorite people to talk to about this stuff. We gotta, we gotta make this happen more often, man. Well, we were talking just before we came on the Nuggets last year. You know, the 14th pick. I was like, I don't know. I'm not gonna do anything. And then you know, this year, not even having one. I'm like, I don't. You know, it turns out both years were really fascinating. I think two of the more interesting drafts, maybe not good or bad, but just interesting. So I blew it but this is our chance to make up for lost time let me no question yeah so we're going to talk in this episode about bull bull uh, uh, primarily about bull bull but we're also going to get into michael porter jr jared vanderbilt i want sam to rank all of denver's 23 and under players because there's so many of them and i think kind of guessing which ones everybody knows where beasley monte morris and jamal murray land so kind of sliding mpj vanderbilt and bull bull into that equation will give a good frame of reference for how high or low Sam is on all those guys. Um, but to, to kick off, I want to ask you a broad question. And this is kind of the an age-old question about young talent in the NBA. Have the Nuggets drafted well over the last five years, or have they developed their talent well when you step back and look at who's on their roster and how they've done so far? Yeah, I think it's both. Uh, I, I think you can't have one without the other. Certainly, they've identified talent extraordinarily well. I mean, they uh, identified Nikola Jokic and yeah. convinced him to stash for a year and then uh, become the player that he was capable of and come over here. And he was on the bench for a year, realistically, kind of backing up Yusuf Nurkic a little bit. Like, <laughs> and you could tell that Jokic was better than yeah. Nurkic. So, like, it was like take it was just like taking time to figure all of that out. But um, you know, I think even the most optimistic perspective on Nikola Jokic was, you know, he becomes a good starter, right? But right. what he's become is unbelievable. Um, so I think you have to look at him. I think you have to look at the fact that like Gary Harris was a top. 20 pick right yeah Malik Beasley to top 20 pick right like these guys have exceeded and, and like maybe Malik hasn't exceeded yet I expect Malik to exceed where he was drafted to be honest I'm a pretty big fan but like these guys have exceeded where they were drafted and the fact that it has happened as consistently as it has I don't think you can rule out the amount of development that goes into this right yeah, for sure. I think on some level it's not even just the coaching staff it's having a such a spectacular player such as Nikola Jokic mm. who is you know just such a culture guy but also someone who fosters development in the way that he plays basketball right he just is I so I love this take so much yeah he's just so sharing and he makes sure that everyone gets the ball in the right places at the right times i really think there's something to that i mean we can talk about the fact that um I really think there might be like something of a small marginal advantage that Denver has playing at altitude in terms of getting their guys in better shape. Mm, And just like once they play at lower levels of altitude, maybe their uh, lungs are a little bit better. Maybe they can run out games a little bit more and their percentages in terms of shooting, their percentages in terms of um, rebounding and playing hard. Maybe those go up a little bit. Like I think that there are inherent advantages there, but at the end of the day, I think that a lot of it comes down to the coaching staff. I think a lot of it comes down to the front office putting these guys into position to succeed. And, you know, I think that, you know, Tim Connolly and Arturus Karnisovas have done such a spectacular job of uh, identifying talent as well. Yeah, I, I want to pull on something that you just said there that I find really interesting. You were talking about guys learning to play around Jokic and there's so many we always use the, the phrases like play the right way, which I don't always love those phrases. But in terms of just like trusting teammates and cutting and you know not letting the ball stick those are all great lessons to learn but 
If you don't have a star player that's willing to reward you for those things, it's so hard to teach young guys like, hey, trust your teammates, even though they'll never trust you back. Um, I do think that has a large part to do with it. Even just the cutting aspect, getting guys to like run pick and roll and DHOs and actually cut hard, they know they're going to get rewarded. So they all do it so yeah. so much. Yeah, um, no question. I think there's a, that's a huge part of it. Um, on defense, I think the fact that on some level you really do have to insulate Nikola yeah. a little bit. You got to try like, a little harder. <laughs> you have to play a little bit harder. It's not that like Nikola is a disaster defender or anything, but he's not moving fleet of foot out there. Right. right. So uh, I, I do think that there is something to the idea of also just generally guys that come in and there's an established star there. There's an established center there. Yeah. I think that, that once that happens, guys are able to come in learn a role, play a role like initially, and then try and expand their games beyond that role. Right. Uh, I just, it's just such an interesting dynamic. I think, uh, for players to be able to enter the league surrounded by a star already. And I think it really helps in terms of development. Yeah. I love that too. L- last thing about nuggets development that I think kind of gives them an advantage. And I'm curious your opinion on this, the NBA, one of the things people that are like die hard, you know, shouldn't be a one and done rule. It should be like three minimum years of college or whatever is they think, you know, guys need to go through certain steps. And obviously I, I'm an NBA guy. I think I should go straight to the NBA as they will in a couple of years. But one of the things about that is sometimes players are forced to sort of skip steps. They're thrown into the deep end. And I think with Malik Beasley, I, I think I'm with you. I think he's going to, if he hasn't already, I think he will outperform his draft slot. But one of the things about him is he couldn't get on the court because there was guys ahead of him. And as much as that's a negative, the positive, in my opinion, has been he's become a lot more fundamental than I think he was as a prospect, in large part because that's what he had to work on. And, you know, that that moniker of not skipping steps, he's a guy that had to go through every little step along the way. And I think his game now is ready for a real steep curve of improvement. Do you see it that way? To an extent, yes. Mm. I I don't know if it's necessarily skipping steps. I think it's... I think it more has to do with like emotional maturity and being capable of stepping into an adverse situation early on. Like I think some guys enter the league because they have a high draft stock and it's uh, just financially viable and financially worthwhile to them to enter the NBA, but they might not be ready to play at that level, right? They might not be ready to live on their own and be in a yeah. uh, totally different environment for to sure. what they've been in in the past. Uh, and plus, you know, just in general, like on the floor stuff, some guys just aren't physically ready to play on the floor with NBA players. And, you know, as the league gets younger, as we've seen over the course of the last few drafts, right, with just numerous uh, early entrants entering, we had a record this year, um, certainly a high number of freshman entrants. We've seen higher numbers of one and done players entering the draft over the course of the last couple of years. And we're certainly going to see more guys um, that are 18, 19 years old enter whenever the uh, uh, one and done ends up being revised and changed. So I do look at it kind of from a multi lens point of view where, um, not everyone's development is going to be the same, but you know, in a guy like Malik's case, uh, I do think that he probably wasn't ready to play in the NBA early on, but the fact that he had to go and kind of fight for his spot, and, you know, ended up getting hurt, too. Maybe that slowed down yeah. the development a little bit, too, sure. in like a, I don't want to say an advantageous way because you never want guys to get hurt, right? But right. Um, it might have slowed things down just a touch right. for him. Whereas with someone like Kevin Knox, right? Uh, <laughs> Kevin Knox was thrown into the deep end this year and everyone's like, oh, my God, this guy's the worst NBA player in history. Um that's probably not the case. Like we'll see what the effects are on his development. Right. Moody is another example of that. Nuggets fans, I think have a real good view on because he, I I, I still believe we could redo his career in a better situation. It might've been a little bit different. I don't think he would have been a star, but he was just asked to do so much and play 33 minutes a night. And you know, they, they did these videos about him being the new King of Denver and stuff. And it was just, I mean, he clearly wasn't ready for that. And it felt like instead of learning everything at once, he learned nothing 
and and just contrasting that to a guy like Beasley, who this year they basically told him shoot the ball, defend, run out and transition, and we'll add pieces later. And he just excelled. It seems the more simple his game got. Yeah, hot take. It is exceptionally difficult to play 33 minutes in the NBA as a lead guard. <laughs> like, what what, what so if you've only hard. played nine games in the previous two years and they were all in China? I, I just, Moutier's career is so fascinating because so many things broke against him, I think. Um, but I think he's going to be fine now too. Like I, I really like. I don't know if he's going to be like you said. I don't know if he's going to be an all star or anything. Probably won't be that because I don't know if he has that athleticism. But he's going to be fine. Like he's kind of figured out his game. Things have slowed down for him. His time in New York, like he actually earned himself a second contract that I think will probably be worth multiple years. Yeah, well, we'll find out. But speaking of of emotional, mental, and maybe physical, uh, physically just being behind, that leads us into Bowl Bowl. So we'll we'll take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Bowl Bowl and really get into everything that has been said and written about him over the last little bit and try to figure out who he is as a player. We'll be right back. And I'm back here with Sam Vecini of The Athletic, and let's get into Bull Bull now. Um, my first question, draft night, I had actually forgotten about him by the time he was picked. I, I thought about him through the first round, but somewhere around the second round, I just stopped. I didn't have the volume on. I was at Pepsi Center, and I completely forgot just that he was still available and everything. Did you see him falling that far? I know you were low, but did you see him going into the second round? Um, I didn't. I mean, look. Here's what I'll say about that to go full purred happily, I guess. Um, <laughs> I projected Bull at 27 on my mock draft. The only reason that I had him that high was because he was invited to the draft. Right, right, right yep. Typically, I think the NBA does a pretty good job of figuring out what guys should be in the green room, what guys should not be in the green room. Um, but if I have you at 27, I think there's a very real chance, and I'll read you what I said essentially on draft night, or on the mock draft. His range remains as wide as any player's. He's being considered by teams in the late lottery due to the perceived upside of his skill set. That was accurate. Yeah. But people around the league legitimately think there's a chance he falls out of the first round. Mm. Um, you know, I'm slotting him in the first round, given he's invited to the green room, but this one is wide open. And I think that... It was just kind of like I was following along on Twitter because I don't actually the way that my work process goes. I have to write so much on draft night that like I don't actually watch the draft. Right. (laughs) I just follow it on Twitter. Yeah. And it was bizarre to me that people continued to be like, oh, my God, we have to take Bull Bull. How are we missing out on Bull Bull? How are we not the team that is selecting him? I mean, like, I get it that he's this big name player who in seven games put up like 20 points and seven rebounds a night who can shoot threes and can do like interesting stuff for a big man. But you really look at the totality of what his situation is. And it is weird to me that people didn't see this as a possibility, at least. Yeah. Um, First and foremost, he is the navicular bone injury. Well, right, actually, yeah. he is the navicular bone injury, which is an issue for seven footers. I want to say that it's something like six of the eight seven footers that have had this injury have missed like multiple years due to it. Um, it is, you know, a situation where you typically need multiple procedures to totally fix the issue. Um, throw in that he is. 207 pounds, 208 pounds, whatever he weighed in at, at the combine. It blows that's my about, mind that he yeah, weighs that. <laughs> 30 pound drop from what he was at Oregon, or at least what he was listed at at Oregon. I'm assuming they're not just making that number up that he came in at 235. So the fact that he dropped 35 pounds over the course of that time, I think kind of says maybe a couple of things, right? Uh, either he wasn't working hard enough while he was injured right. to yeah, maintain right. the weight, or 
his frame, and I, I honestly think this is probably more likely, his frame just is not conducive to putting on and keeping on weight over the course of a season. Like, for instance, I remember talking to Bryce Johnson about this thing right before the draft. Bryce Johnson was the super skinny guy for North Carolina who right. was a all-American first team, ended up being picked late in the first round. He is the subject of the uh, famous Mike Wilbon tweet saying, give me Bryce Johnson over Ben Simmons in the draft. Um, Bryce Johnson, they listed him at like 235 or so, North Carolina, and that was right. That's what he weighed in at at the beginning of the year. It wasn't a lie that that was the case. The problem was that Bryce would tell me that like during the season, there was just so much stuff going on. Like this is a normal thing that he would just drop weight. He would get down. He was down to like 220 or 225. It maybe came in at 240. He dropped like 15 to 20 pounds basically over the course of the season because it's just really hard for him to maintain weight. I think that that's going to be the case with Vol. I think it's going to be really hard for him to maintain weight. Throw in the next part of this in terms of just like maintaining throughout injuries, right? He has exceptionally high hips. He has a very skinny lower body. Uh, he is just someone that I think is going to struggle uh, to stay healthy. Like mechanically, that body does not look like it's going to age well. Yeah. Um, throw in the fact that if he doesn't put on weight, it's going to be really hard for him to play in the NBA, yeah. right? Like it's just no doubt be, about it. Yeah. Like you can't play in the NBA. It's seven foot three, 207 pounds. Like you're just going to get pushed around constantly. And if you go and watch the tape and this is kind of where we get into the third part of this, the tape shows all of these issues as well. Like if you go back and watch, I, I would implore all nuggets fans to go back and watch Oregon play Iowa in New York at what I believe was the two K classic. Um, it was one of the most damning pieces of tape evidence that I watched pre-draft this entire year. And I mean, I watched the game live, but then like I went back and watched it again. Iowa physical I mean, team, right? Burley, Big Ten type team that just like gets, likes to get physical. Yeah, from bigs. Yeah. So what would happen is they had a couple of big guys. Luca Garza is their starting center, six foot ten, six eleven, two hundred and fifty pounds. He just bury bowl yeah. inside, get position wherever he wanted. The bigger problem was though they have this you know bigger bodied six ten, two hundred and forty pound like kind of stretchy big named Ryan Krieger who's their backup center. The backup center for like a borderline NCAA tournament team. He was just like pinning. Yeah. Bowl deep beneath the basket and just like getting wherever he wanted. And I think part of it is just a lack of strength, but part of it too is bull just doesn't provide much in terms of resistance. He doesn't like, he doesn't have that motor to yeah. where like he takes it personally. You know what I mean? Whenever right. someone like pins him deep beneath the basket, um, on the perimeter defensively, I don't see an avenue to success for him on the perimeter defensively. Mm. Like people talk about his soft feet, and I think he does have like pretty soft feet. The problem is though that his hips are so high that it's really hard for him to turn his hips yeah. and be able to drop and like actually deal with guards who can turn the corner on him. Uh, he got the corner turned on him in pick and roll coverage, playing drop pick and roll coverage uh, multiple times. Uh, during that game against Iowa. And, you know, you can look at it just being one game, but this was the best team that they played all year. And it's very indicative of the issues I've seen with Bull going back to his time in high school. I mean, he's lived out here in Southern California. Like, I've seen him quite a bit at this stage. Mm. And he is just a slow-twitch athlete. Now, the last negative thing I'll say is that, and I won't, like, harp on this necessarily, uh, there are real concerns about like how much he loves basketball. Like every yeah. NBA executive says this. Yeah. Um, it's not like it's not like oh you're getting it from like one source. You know you're getting it from across the NBA. It, it, it's to the point where like how my process would go with asking teams, hey, where do you think Bull is going to get drafted? They would tell me. Yeah, we think like maybe 13 to 25, like something in that range. We think someone will just take a shot on him. Right. And then I said, would you be the team that would take him? <laughs> and they'd just be like, probably not, I yeah. don't think. I mean, like, look, if he falls far enough, yeah, maybe. But um, like in that range, we wouldn't take it. So I talked to a lot of teams like that. And it just became evident to me over the course of that time that like there are teams that have very real worries about this and uh it didn't seem like the narrative of bull 
lined up with where he was in yeah. terms of like what the NBA actually thought of him. So is because I've heard a lot of stuff about the attitude and the work ethic and all of those things. Does it all come back to just love of the game? Because I think Denver's MO over the last couple of years has been if a player checks all these different boxes, but they have one or two tra- quote unquote tragic flaws, especially in the second round, it's better to take that and try to fix the tragic flaw than to get a guy to improve and all these other, you know, to add check marks to all the other boxes. So but but that's all predicated on the fact that a player has to want want that. I mean, Monte Morris was too small, but he really worked hard on his shot and his floater. Um, you know, does is that does it all come back to just not having the drive, or are there other things about his attitude or personality that you've heard? Um, I'm not gonna dive too deep into the sure, intel sure. done on Bull. Um, just because a lot of it comes off the record and secondhand, and I don't really yeah think that that's fair um i will say that the attitude stuff is the attitude and the uh desire to get better the work ethic um understanding how much it takes to be a great basketball player and how far he is still from being a great basketball player those are the things that come up the most yeah and that's interesting. So here's one thing, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. My, my role sometimes, you know, I try to look at things both pessimistically and optimistically. I'm going to put the optimistic hat on right now. If there's one sure. thing about Denver that I really sort of buy into, and this was the – I've bought into it for the last couple years, but this was the year I, like, really, really bought into it is I kind of trust the culture and that they've built. Like, I, I kind of believe mm-hmm. it's a real thing. Now, that doesn't mean that Bull Bull is going to buy into it. But it does make me think that if there was an environment out there for him to sort of learn those lessons and say, like, oh, man, these guys are good and look how hard they all work and look how unselfish and how much they all kind of buy into a unified goal. If there was a team out there that sort of displays those things, I think it was Denver. First of all, do you feel the same way? And then also just the fit for – I mean, Denver – if Bull Bull doesn't pan out, Denver pretty much is who they are now. I mean, it almost makes no difference. Do you think this is a good situation for him for all of those reasons? I think it is the best possible situation for him um, from all of the cultural aspects that you've just mentioned. Again, though, I noted at the top of this, like, I think Denver has a very real advantage playing at altitude and practicing at altitude. Yeah. And Bull's number one concern on the floor, I think, is conditioning. It hurts him offensively. It hurts him Mm. defensively. It hurts in transition. It hurts in the way that he's willing to fight against guys. And I wonder if playing at altitude and like getting his lungs up, right. Yeah. Will really help him in terms of being able to just run out games, right? Like in that vein, I think that this is the best possible landing spot for Bull Bull. I'm skeptical on everything else right. when it comes to Bull, <laughs> um, other than the shooting. Like, I'll say this: yeah. like, I think Bull right now, straight up, is a 40 percent above the break three point shooter. Yeah. Um, and there are very few guys I say that about coming into the NBA. He is that good as a shooter above the break. He is unbelievable he has he has such soft touch because i think the form is kind of goofy and the shot it just doesn't look pretty but but you can tell like just the speed and trajectory of the ball is so soft and the way it hits the rim is just like oh man that guy has some touch to him um so how would you approach if you're the nuggets how would you approach bull bull this like first year this summer and this first year obviously coming off the injury but would you treat him the way you treated michael porter jr and just say hey look even if you are healthy, we're not going to play you. We're going to, this is an entire learning year for you. Yeah, I probably would go about it that way. I mean, again, like I, I would certainly go into it assuming that the first like six or seven months here, at least until like January yeah, are that right. Getting his conditioning up, getting his weight up a little bit. Um, I mean, teams that have seen him uh, like he did that workout and I want to say it was in Thousand Oaks out here yeah, in right. Santa Monica. Yeah. Um, Beautiful workout. So Some of the clips are on YouTube. And you put this, I think, a tweet out there like, of course he looks good in a workout. That's that's where he shines. Well, it's fun. Yeah. Like I, I heard from teams. Yeah, he looked fine. He looked fine in this workout setting. Mm. And then I heard from other teams that were like, yeah, I mean, he certainly did all of the stuff we expected, but he was tired after like 10 minutes oh, of yeah. the workout. Yeah, yeah. Right. So 
I think that that's going to be the biggest thing is just getting his conditioning up, getting him back to the point where he can run out games, play actually like 20 minutes in a game if they need him to and be able to like really just uh, run out a game and not be like a liability from a conditioning standpoint. As soon as that happens, I mean, from everything I've been told, like the foot isn't a problem right now. I mean, there there are questions about navicular bone injuries long term just in general. Right. But like there's like apparently he says there's no pain so it's fine there um (laughs) so like you look at it from that perspective and i I don't know that i would like write off the full season and just say like oh he's never gonna play but like i do think that there is a world where like you know in seven months now it's late january early february and they need a backup center and, you know, Mason Plumley gets hurt or something. God forbid Nikola Jokic gets hurt or something like they need bowl to step in and play 15 minutes. If he can run out that time, I don't know that I would like totally write it off, but I would go in with the expectation that like, Hey, you're going to have to prove to us that you can run out games. Otherwise we're not going to play you this season. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine any of those scenarios where they would think bowl bowl is the guy. I, again, it's just, if, if Plumley or if, if Jokic gets hurt, the season's pretty much done, done anyway. And if Plumley got hurt, I don't know about you throw Bull Bull out there and like, hey man, we really need you here for the, especially for the level that Mason Plumley contributes to this team in the regular season. So I think he's probably on the shelf for all. I think he probably has a similar year to Jared Vanderbilt, and that yeah, come January February, he might get some of these token garbage time minutes when when the game's over. Maybe a couple games in the G League, not like a full G League you know season, but. Maybe they send him down there on a couple different assignments for two or three games, um, but that to me that seems more in line with what they their mo is. And then have him eat some sandwiches here in the you know between now and then, and hopefully put on three or four uh, thirty or forty pounds, put some muscle on. Um, Sam, that was good stuff on Bull Bull. Um, hopefully, we'll have more optimistic <laughs> takes from Sam on the other side of this break as we get into Michael Porter Jr. Well, and can, can we Vanderbilt. can we talk about Bull real quick, just like in terms of like what I think the upside is, please. In general, like, I I was not someone who thought, like, he is a top 10 talent or, like, a top 5 talent in this class. Like, people would say that. You would hear. Right? But I I do think that if he can get strong enough and can get well-conditioned, like, he can be a, like, potential, like, starting center in Mm -hmm. the NBA. Um, And he can be a guy that uh, can really space the floor from distance and help you. Like... Again, his shooting skill is very real, and I think that uh, there is a world to his success. Like, I just, like, uh, can I curse on this? Of course. Go for it. Yeah, like, I just shit on him for, like, ten minutes, (laughs) and I don't really, like – it's not that I think he is a lost cause by any stretch. It's just, like, I think there are very real holes here. There are very real concerns, and I think that, like, he's a somewhat – inflated asset right now based off of like what the public thinks of him but like the talent he can like handle the ball he has soft feet he's way more fluid than you would think from a guy that's seven foot three you know like he can really really shoot the basketball uh if he's there around the basket he is a very real impediment to blocking shots because he has like a nine eight standing reach so yeah just yeah like there are real positives here like I, i don't mean to just like Throw I, it all under the bus, right? Well, one comp but, I heard was the offensively, at least, was this year's Brooke Lopez, which you know, I mean, Brooke Lopez just spotted up or ran pick and pop, and I don't. There's a value. There's a real value to that if you have like a, a good release point and you can and you can knock it down. Yeah, and you know, like Denver has experience playing drop coverages. They kind of mixed their defensive coverages a little bit more this season. Sometimes they would have Jokic, uh, you know, just kind of hedge for three steps then drop back sometimes they would have him um just drop sometimes they would switch Jokic. like they they actually did a really good job of mixing coverages i don't think you're going to be able to do that with bowl necessarily but given their experience playing drop coverage like i think that this is a good defensive scheme potentially for him the problem in the difference between him and brooke lopez though like is on the defensive end where brooke is just like a brick wall and is physically strong and guys bounce off of him uh and he can like slide his feet so the guys can't like just blow by him right uh i don't see that from bowl yet 
Yeah. I don't think we'll see that from Bold. I mean, he might be a, a plus defender at some point, but it won't be like Brooke Lopez's where he's a physical, you know, down there banging on the blocks or whatever. Um, what about the Porzingis I, I be, offensive comp? I'd be shocked if he was a plus defender. I'll say yeah, that. Yeah. Um, what about the Porzingis comp? Because you hear that one a lot too. Just they're tall and skinny and they both shoot the three. Do you see some of the like handle stuff as a Porzingis as well? Um, Porzingis had lower hips and I think broader shoulders, mm. which made him a little bit more uh, able to put on good weight. Yeah, that's right? a good point. Yeah. Uh, whereas with Bull, I'm a little bit more skeptical of the frame long term yeah. mm. um just in terms of like the offensive game i see what people i see why people would say that at least um just because of the shooting because of uh the ability to handle the ball some the ability to i mean like the thing with Kristaps is though like Kristaps has a post game where like he might get like pushed out like 12 feet from the basket but he has such a high release point that he can shoot over the top of those guys from the mid-range and create his own shot. Bull's release point, kind of getting back to the funky shot mechanics that you mentioned, is so low that I think he's going to struggle to kind of create his own offense in the post, even like as a skinny guy. That yeah. Does that. yeah, I can see that as well. And you saw some of that in college, too, where he would almost fade away on his shot but still get contested just, just because of what you said. He didn't have the physical skill to kind of push a guy back before falling back. So... Um, I can right. see it. I just he has a lot to learn. I look at him as a pretty raw prospect, but I'm really curious. I think I think all of this stuff we talked about with upside and talent and skill, they're all really fascinating. But it really sounds like if he gets here and, and buys into working really hard, you know, maybe the possibilities are pretty endless. If not, and he stays within of you know more or less what the knock has on him has been. Um, you know, a lot of players have come through and just not shown improvement and, and he might go by the wayside, but we'll see. The nice thing about Denver is, like I said, I don't think they need him. Um, he, he's, he's found money at 44, so we'll, we'll, we'll see if it pays off. All right, let's go to break. When we come back, Michael Porter Jr., Jared Vanderbilt, we're only a week away from like unwrapping these new presents. I can't wait to, and we'll talk to Sam about them here in just a moment. I successfully put Michael Porter Jr. out of my mind for the last, I would say for the last year all the way up until about a week or two weeks ago. Um, Woj, who, you know, has broken a lot of stories around the Nuggets. I mean, I would I would assume he has a pretty close relationship with Denver, as he does with just about every team. Woj has really been hyping Michael Porter Jr. lately, and it just sounds like where Denver usually, I think, would be in a position to kind of Hey, temper expectations. Let's not get too excited. It just sounds like everything coming out of there is, oh my gosh, this guy's incredible. What do you expect out of Michael Porter Jr. in summer league here a week from now? Yeah, I saw someone, I think it might have been him say, someone reported it. I think it might have been Chris Dempsey um, say that Michael said that he feels healthier than he did at any time since his sophomore year. Let, let me uh, just say school. he also said that when he was introduced last summer. <laughs> after the draft so that's kind of a line i think he's gone to maybe maybe every every step along this process yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> so like look if, if he's healthy he's an exceptional talent like yeah. <laughs> nobody can deny the michael porter jr talent like that guy is a three-level scorer at six foot ten who is athletically explosive um can really shoot the basketball i want to say he was like right around 40 percent in high school from three does he get to um, the rim you said three level score but the one question i have for him is like every time i s see highlights of him he's never at the rim yeah I, I think that he can get to the rim um you know a lot of what his highlights are, are certainly like these two dribble pull-ups in the mid-range yeah. or yeah. knocking down shots from three but um yeah he can get to the rim especially in the open floor um yeah you know maybe not a guy early on in his career i think a lot of it like in general and we'll talk about this in a second like what his upside is is just like how tight how tight can he get his handle yeah. right how close to his body can he get it how close to the floor can he get it because it's six foot ten with not crazy length right like one thing that kevin durant has at you know six foot ten to seven foot whatever we want to call kevin durant right he has those long arms that are like a seven foot six wingspan and those six inches 
closer to the ground really help him keep the ball lower to the ground and he can do those wicked little crossovers, right? right. Michael has like a seven-foot wingspan, so it's a little bit different for him, yeah. right? Like the dribble is just going to be a little bit naturally higher, which is going to allow it to be ripped a little bit more, right? Right. Um, so he almost has to like tuck the ball closer to his body yeah. whenever he's driving to the basket as opposed to being able to dribble and then power dribble up, right? Um, Michael, man, I'm just fascinated to see how this goes <laughs> because he, the guy, like you really can't emphasize enough. He is from an athletic standpoint, just like really ridiculously fluid. He's always been, I'm in my opinion, at least very underrated in terms of explosiveness because he jumps off of one foot. Um, like that's one thing you watch his highlights. Like he's a consistent one foot leaper. Yeah. And to me, like that is one of the most important things that you can do when getting to the basket in the NBA is be able to leap off that one foot, get there quickly instead of having to gather off of two feet and giving that defense just a split second to react and get back into position and contest the shot at the rim. Ah, Man, Michael's tough. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have to throw out the injury stuff, I think, in large part because we just don't know. I mean, we'll factor it in as in, you know, he's going to be a much bigger injury risk than most prospects or whatever. But we just don't know. I mean, for me, we just don't know if his back is recovered. I mean, I know I love that he says he feels great, but I just until I actually see it and see it consistently, I'm I'm always going to think he's, you know, one bad hit away from being bad again. Yeah. I mean, just like as a player in general – I mean, like even throwing away the injury again, like it's hard for me to even like overrate the talent. Like I had him at number five on my board last year, even knowing the extent of the injuries, right? Like I had him falling to the late lottery. I had like, I had all of that, right? Like I knew how bad it was and he's still just ridiculous. And, And now like the question for me is, it's almost not the scoring ability because I think that as long as he's healthy, he's going to be able to score it at a high level in the NBA. It's how does he play with his teammates? How does he play with Jokic? Um, How does, how does he work next to a Jamal Murray who has established himself very strongly now as like a dominant scoring point guard, right? Or score first, you know, ball dominant point guard, even though he's like not ball dominant by point guard standards, but naturally point guards are going to be somewhat ball dominant. Right. Um, how does he fit in that construct of it all? Right. I'm not entirely clear just because he's never been like some exceptional passer like he's not he's not a ball mover like the rest of this nuggets team is um like even like a guy like jamal like a guy like gary um will barton even these guys all really move the basketball at a high level even if they're not necessarily creating for others by like driving kick right they're just going to keep that ball on a string and just keep it moving along the perimeter, right? Um, Michael's more of, I'm going to dribble once or twice, and this is him at lower levels. Like Maybe Denver has drilled this out of him by now, right? Um, Michael is more of like a prober where he's going to dribble a couple times, see if he can get a driving lane, and then he's going to pass it. So that adjustment will be a little bit interesting to me. Real quick, I've watched him play three-on-three a lot. It, it, you know, just in workouts and stuff, and he plays that exact same way. I mean, he—that's that, my—that's. I told people a while back my biggest concern was an injury. It was—it was like stylistically. And look, I, until we see him, I'm not—I'm going to keep my mind completely clear. But that is probably my biggest basketball concern: is his favorite thing to do is sort of to catch the ball, size a guy up with two or three crossovers, and then pull up. And it's just, you know, how does that fit? Like you said, how does that fit with what Jokic does and Murray does? I—I I, I don't know. Yeah. So. I agree with that. I'll be very interested to see just what Denver does with him in that. Maybe it's like, maybe their goal this year is they'll bring him off the bench and just like play him with bench units. And oh, whenever Jokic so. is on the floor, he'll just go about that. Right. Because they have Paul Millsap. Probably they don't need to do this. Right. Like they don't need to bring along Porter as quickly as possible. They have wings that they can play. Like, But I will it, say this, go, this, go, this does go back to my first point though about the Nuggets. And that is you get points when you cut 
off of Jokic. And like Gary learned that very yeah. early. Jamal Murray, who I think probably had more one-on-one in him than he has now, like when he first came into the league, I, I, he's yeah. kind of learned too, like, oh man, I can get all these easy buckets off of these cuts. So maybe Michael Porter Jr. will also learn this at some point of, you know, that's that's good for four points a game if I just do this back cut, you know, four or five times. So I, again, yeah. I'll, I'll try to trust the culture on him, although I do think, I don't know Bull Bull, but just what I've observed about Michael Porter Jr., he probably still has a lot more humbling, I guess, to do. Um, so it, it, that's why next year will be so fascinating with him. Let's quickly, because we're, we're running short on time here, let's quickly go to Jared Vanderbilt. Um, what, do, what do you remember about him through the pre-draft process? And, and Scorda, what's your takeaway on him? Yeah, I liked Jared early on in his high school career. Um, you know, six foot nine, seven one wingspan, good physical frame at 225 pounds, really good athlete, fluid athlete. Um, not like the world's most explosive guy vertically, but pretty quick. Um, always seemed like a guy to me that, uh, would be best as like a point forward switchable defensively. Uh, you know, he's a really, really high level passer for a guy that's that size. Um, he's a guy that is very good defensively makes action plays happen, has a nose for the basketball as a rebounder. Um, at the end of the day, it all comes down to the jump shot on some level mm. with Jared. Like he was a complete non-shooter yeah. throughout high school. He was a complete non-shooter in his time at Kentucky. Um, it's hard to say how far that's come along. Like he played four G League games and you know played what maybe like 150, 200 minutes with Denver last year, right? But you can um, non-shooters sometimes jump off the screen, and even in his limited minutes and G League minutes, I, I don't think it's come anywhere. I, I think it's probably still where it was before the injury, which is to say, not very far. Yeah, so uh, that's still going to be the number one thing if he can develop. Even like if he can get to the point where he is a thirty-four percent three-point shooter on catch-and-shoot shots. He's going to be a valuable NBA player, I think, like at least off the bench. Um, The upside is real. The way that he rounds out his skill set beyond the shooting is very, very high level, I think. Like he is kind of an awesome role player because of the number of things that he can do. Right. But you can't be just such a complete and utter non-shooter now. Otherwise, you have to play the five. And just given the history of foot injuries, given the history of lower leg injuries – I don't know how comfortable I would feel playing him at the five. Let's let's pretend for a moment that Michael Porter Jr. panned out and he's you know what we maybe maybe he's ninety percent of his potential. So he pretty good you know score shooter floor spacer. Ninety percent of Michael's upside is all star. So, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty great. Um, okay, so maybe we'll say eighty percent. He's just good. Let's just say he's really good. And then you have Gary Harris, Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic. That's four floor floor spacers, and Jokic spaces the floor in an interesting way. Not just with the shooting, but also with just how he plays the perimeter. So if you have yeah. f- that much floor spacing, is there space for Vanderbilt on the court in that lineup? Um, I don't know that I would want to play both Michael and Jared on the floor at the same time. Just fr- and Nikola on the floor. Like I don't know that I would want that much size. Mm. Um, I would probably want to play a little bit smaller. But like, let's say you replace Michael with like a smaller three that can shoot. Okay, maybe. Yeah. yeah, I think that, like, I can see that world working. You have, like, f- what, you run, like, 5-4 screen and rolls sometimes with Jokic, and you... Yeah, this would be fun. Just, like, kind of throw Vanderbilt in the dunker spot. Where he's really good is, he's, like, a like I said, like, he's an exceptional passer for yeah. his size. Like, he's excellent in the high post. It's just kind of a weird fit offensively with Jokic, because Jokic is just, like, I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say he's like six times better than Jared Vanderbilt <laughs> right. is. Right. <laughs> but like they do like to kind of operate in the same spaces. And I just wonder how that would work. I mean, like you can teach Jared and just, hey, go stand in the dunker spot and like figure it out. But I, I don't know if you're getting like the full repertoire um, of Jared, like playing him with Nikola all the time. The one area I think they really work well together Jokic lineups are always very good offensive rebounding lineups. And some of that's because Jokic yeah. is very good at it. But a lot of it, I really believe, is because your best rebounder is often your center. And it, your best box-out guy. And Jokic just drags that guy out into other roles. So 
teams are out of you know they're a little bit out of position to rebound the way they traditionally do and it opens up for other people so jared being in that dunker spot while the center is out on the perimeter trying to guard the pick and roll and, and dho's and all this stuff i did he's already such a good nose for the ball and rebounds I, I i think that's one area he could really put pressure on the defenses you know when you have to box a guy out for 24 seconds of the shot clock it, that occupies a, a defender yeah and jared like i said like he is a monster on the glass like he chases everything he has a great nose for the basketball i mean like you said denver finished second in offensive rebounding rate last year uh and i think in large part it is because centers have to guard Jokic just so far away from the basket uh yeah yeah, i mean it's very plausible Mm -hmm. i think that you know jared does make a real impact on the offensive glass well, let's do this fun thing then to get out of here, Sam. Um, let's rank all of the players 24 and under. And I had to raise it to 24 because Monte Morris, it's his birthday today. <laughs> so he's 24 That's and I didn't, want, I didn't want to take him out. But that includes now Jokic and Harris, Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr., Jared Vanderbilt, Monte Morris, Malik Beasley, Juancho Hernan Gomez, and Bol Bol. The Nuggets now, it actually doesn't include Thomas Welsh and Vladko Chanchar, who let's just pretend they're at the bottom of this list. Um, but you have the Shout list. out Tom Welsh, man. <laughs> Is that your guy? <laughs> Tom Welsh. So Tom was out here at UCLA while I've like basically lived out here. And I shit you not. I don't know if I've ever met like a nicer human being in my entire life. <laughs> For sure. He is like just the best. Yeah. Yeah. I, he, he, we agree. <laughs> and it's funny. Will Barton called him his favorite player in the NBA, which I, it just really cracked me up. But, um, uh, like I, Tom Welsh is going to play for a decade in the NBA because everyone likes him and he is just like that terrific of a person. The, the next Nick Collison. He <laughs> I really might be. Nicole, like, Nick Collison. Nick Collison who could shoot. <laughs> I don't, Nick Collison had like a 12 year career and played 200 or fewer minutes in like half of them. Um, okay, let's do this. So they have the list here on our, our sheet here. Who Jokic, I assume, is at the top of this. And, and I guess the way we'll do this yeah. is what you expect their ceiling to be. So you could say Michael Porter Jr.'s absolute best-case scenario is the top, but let's just say what you would project them to actually accomplish in their careers. Okay. So I'd say Jokic at one. Okay. Um, Jamal Murray at two. Okay. Gary Harris at three. Okay. Um... I think I would have Michael at four. So, I would have B. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say so. Mike, so you MPJ basically having about as good of a career as Gary Harris, maybe slightly below him. Uh, that kind of gives Nuggets a good frame of reference because if you added a Gary Harris of small forward position, I mean Nuggets fans would be. I think they'd be okay with that. I think that. In Michael's case, like I'm like treating this like an expected value equation, right? Sure. And to do that, like you have to account for like a chance that Michael is just like nothing. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, like if I was a team trading for one of these guys, I would ascribe a much higher value to Gary Harris because okay. I know Gary Harris can help me win games. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Um, and I, I just don't know that about uh, Michael Porter yet. Okay. So, um, so after MPJ, I would say Beasley at five. Okay. Monte Morris at six. It's a tough one. Yeah, I think Monte and then Wancho. Okay. Um. And then Vanderbilt, and then Bull. Okay, that's a really interesting list because it's we kind of did this over at Denver Stiffs the other day in a roundtable, and it was different than what I think anybody else came up with. Um, but it kind of gives us a good idea of where of what you expect out of you know Bull. Bull well, what Vanderbilt. did you guys have? I think you know obviously Jokic is at the top of the list. I had Murray. I think I had Harris next. I think I had the first four the same with MPJ there. Mm-hmm. Beasley, I think I went Vanderbilt, maybe sl- slightly. I'm pretty high on Vanderbilt. I really love passing bigs. I mean, it's my favorite thing. So yeah. I'm I'm a little more high on him. Um, and then yeah, I think Bowl was at the bottom. Wancho second to bottom. So we, we I guess we were pretty close there. Just Vanderbilt, I was a lot higher on. Um, yeah, and honestly, like I get that. It's just that I 
ascribed such a value to shooting. Yeah. Um, that like I, I do have real concerns. Like if Jared is like a total non-shooter, um, yeah, it it gets hard for him. You got and really you look at guys out, like like Malik Beasley, Monte Morris, Swancho, like it's not a statement on like me being low on Jared Vanderbilt. I, I actually think I'm like, like, I think Jared's like good. Yeah. Like I would want Jared on my team. It's just that these guys I think are all already rotation players for playoffs for like a playoff team. You know what I mean? So I think that that says a lot about the depth that the nuggets have built up over the course of the last few years that like, a guy with the upside of Jared Vanderbilt is what, like eighth on this list, something like that. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I think eighth. Yeah, I mean that's that's a lot of that's a lot of talent for Denver. I, I like Wancho as well, but t- I'm worried he's going to run out of opportunities in Denver. I don't I don't know. Um, we'll see. There's a numbers crunch in Denver. It'll be interesting to see where it all shakes out. But Sam, I really appreciate it, man. This gave a good uh, a, a good look at Bull Bull. Michael Porter Jr., who I, I think I think Nuggets fans are going to walk away from this maybe slightly discouraged about Bull Bull, but maybe even more encouraged about Michael Porter Jr. So it's all a wash. Yeah, like I, I Michael's talent is unbelievable. Like I, I can't <laughs> emphasize that enough. Like he is, that dude can play, man. That dude has so much just physically talent in, ter- in terms of physical talent. That guy is exceptional yeah. at basketball. Um, or at least has a chance to be exceptional. Like he's 20 years old. He's not there yet, but like he has a real chance to be just so, so good if the health picks up and look like with Michael to just end this on a dour note, like I did with bull. Um, I would look at the family history here. Like he had two sisters that yeah, tore yeah, ACLs yeah. and ended their basketball careers. John Day has torn yeah, ACL yeah. times. Like, I mean, there is like a genetic issue. Yeah. Um, let me let me rephrase that so I don't get sued. There is a potential, like, you know, thought right. around the NBA that like there is a genetic thing with the Porters that yeah. is going to lead them to be more uh, injury prone. Yeah. But hopefully, I mean, I hope that Michael stays healthy because he is very good. It'd be good for the league. Someone to combat the juggernaut Lakers that are assembling at the moment. Um, <laughs> Sam, <laughs> Sam, thanks so much for coming on. Everybody, I always tell whenever I have somebody from The Athletic on, I always strongly encourage you to subscribe to The Athletic. They do great work, not just locally. We have Kendra Andrews, Nick Kosmider covering the Nuggets and do a fantastic and unique job of covering them, but national writers as well. There's so much great content, including Sam. So consider taking a a little bit of your paycheck every month, a tiny amount, and subscribing to them and support the great journalists around. Sam, thanks for joining on. Everybody else, we'll, we'll see you again tomorrow with another brand new episode. We'll see everybody then. Thank you for listening to the Locked on Nuggets podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and visit us on the web at denverstiffs.com.